Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing, senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And making her glorious return to the Mumbrella Cast, senior content journalist Abigail Dawson. It's good to be back. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, we'll be talking to Seven's head of digital sales, James Bays, about whether the network should band together to fight Netflix. Do I think that a single BVOD service is the only answer? Uh, no. The future of streaming measurement. There's nowhere in the world that is that has a solution like Boz does. Um, it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there, but I think the promise of what it's going to deliver is, is amazing. And how Seven's new digital offering will work. We now have the opportunity to be able to connect up all of those parts together have this phenomenal engine room with broadcast pushing towards our digital news assets, as well as over 10 million people uh, within these social communities pushing through to those digital assets as well. But first, the week's topics. The end of Naked. Chep appoints a chief media officer. Lego Masters triumphs for nine. And the dark side of nights out in Adland. So, Naked Communications, for a time, Australia's most talked about agency, is dead. Abby, they used to be on your news beat before you moved across to the event content team. Was this a long time coming or was it a surprise to you? I was most certainly not surprised, Vivian. Um, this has been something that the industry has been speaking about for, for quite a long time and, and something I've been um, been seeing coming. Uh, I think, you know, for me, it became really quite clear in November when their executive creative director, John Burden, was fired um, and he wasn't replaced. And sort of at that point in time, I'd, I'd heard a lot of speculation in the industry about Naked being folded into BMF. And I actually went to Naked and and sort of put this to them and, and they came back to me with an on-the-record comment saying that this was just categorically not true. Yeah, so Tim Kirby, who's the managing director of Naked, who will leave once it folds into BMF, flat out told you it's absolutely not happening. Fast forward six months and what do you know? Surprise, surprise. I remember but seeing... do you think it's possible that he didn't know? I think that that's highly unlikely. I mean, it is possible, uh, but but I... I I think that that was something that was on the cards for a really long time. I mean, <clears throat> you kind of look at the work that they were doing, you know, certainly even over the past year and a half and and the kind of clients that they had and, and it just wasn't enough to sustain a standalone agency. And, Tim, there's a lot of speculation and talk that Naked isn't what it once was. Indeed, when I spoke to the three Australian founders, Matt Baxter, Mike Wilson and Adam Ferrier, they very much talked about it in its heyday and how it was a prolific disruptor and Mike Wilson said even its monumental fuck-ups were fantastic. <laughs> so uh, take us back a bit because it was well before my time and well before Abby's time. What was so special about Naked when it burst onto the Australian scene around 2004? Well, look, I'm particularly fond of Naked, I think, because I, I started writing about media in the UK, I guess, or give or take about 15 years ago. Uh, and let's remember Naked, although it, it's in Australian ownership or was in Australian ownership, started off as a London-based agency. And I I remember as a, a new editor at Media Week, the first time I was writing about media, 
going in, being brought in a few days in by a journalist to meet the founders of Naked. And it was, uh, and, and one of the guys I met was a guy called John Harlow, who's, who's dead now, actually. Um, and they were just so clever and so interesting. And I was so lucky to just to have them explain to me how media worked, you know, and just sort of how they thought about media and media planning. Uh, and the fact that, you know, their argument was very much if you pay a media agency to give you advice as a brand and that media agency is incentivized to spend money on television because they've done big deals with all of the media owners that says we'll give you X dollars if you spend money with us, then the answer will always be a TV ad. Let us do your planning for you and we'll, we'll, we'll help do, you know, we'll, we'll help you do it and we'll help you do it in a really effective way that will help you cut through and the answer might not be any advertising spending at all it might be you know inflatable i'm I, i'm i'm pulling these ones from memory you know inflatable giant footballers floating down on barges down the thames or whatever it might be in that sort of the the london part of the story um and then a year or two later they decided to try and go again and do it in australia and and they they went for the same DNA as the original Naked. It was the kind of the the mad, the wacky professor, which uh, here in Australia was 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 Adam Ferrier, the kind of the door kicking troublemaker in Matt Baxter. Always a point of view, always an opinion. And then the kind of smooth client person was Mike Wilson. Um, and um, you know they they did a similar thing here in Australia. They exploded onto the scene. I think the thing uh, you know, that's interesting about about Naked and certainly from you know what you've explained and and now I actually think it's a really interesting time for them to fold as an agency because I think we're really coming into a time where strategies come back into fashion. I think there was a long time when things were focused on the big creative idea, the big TV ad, the creativity, the production value. And now I think we're really starting to see a big resurgence of strategy and strategies become really cool again. And I think, you know, you look at Thinkabell and and I see them as a very strategic full service or, you know, they started as creative, but full service agency. So I actually think it's a really interesting time for Naked to be folding into BMF. Now, then you kind of look at BMF and you think BMF, they're a great creative agency. You know, the work that they do for Audi is amazing and it's really creative, but can they harness this kind of strategy part of Naked and actually fully implement that into BMF to create a really strategic and creative agency? Because I think there's a bit of that lacking in the industry. Yeah. And look, and for me, I think the other thing is the, to a certain extent, Naked stopped being Naked, stopped being Mm. that fully strategically driven thing. You know, it, it, it changed gradually over time. You know, they, they started being a bit more from being media neutral. Hey, we won't actually do the work. We'll advise you. They were like, except if it's events, we do events. So, you know, you can pay us to do that bit. Um, and the problem was, uh, you know, arguably they forced media agencies to raise the bar. Their strategy was so good. Other agencies were like, okay, well, we've got to up our strategic game in order to deliver, uh, you know, a quality of, of, of strategic thinking. And then, of course, once they had the argument for them paying Naked on top of it changed. So Naked then morphed to being, okay, actually, we are kind of a creative agency as well. So, so they, 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 I think as time went on and particularly once the founders had gone, the essence of it changed a little bit. Well, Tim, you flagged back in 2015 that there were signs of change and 
potentially trouble at Naked when they started talking in the annual report about realigning cost bases and stabilising revenue and flagged their intentions to transition from being thinkers to makers. And you wrote about how that meant that Naked sort of had lost its DNA and, and lost what it was its original point of difference. I know that Adam Ferrier, who's now at Thinkabell, is confident that there's space in the market for a Naked mm. 2.0. Uh, do you do you think that that could happen? Does the industry need what Naked once was a media neutral agency? Yeah, I think so. And Abby, you're 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 nodding even more vigorously from than me. So let me let you you come in first on that one. I I absolutely do, and it kind of uh, rounds back to the point that I was making before. Is I actually think now is the perfect time to have another agency like Naked. I think, you know, someone asked me a question in the industry the other day. They said, what was Naked's downfall? Was it that they they just didn't have any clients? And, you know, for me, I, I certainly think that it was they had great people behind it and great thinkers and they then kind of lost their identity after that. So I absolutely think that now's the perfect time for another Naked. And then uh, probably just finally on the Naked, but one other factor was – they sold. They were mm. independent and they sold to Photon Group, which was what's now known as an aero. And, of course, it always changes when you're owned by an ASX company, particularly because uh, Photon Group imploded, only just survived. Matt Malewish, who was the, the M of BMF, took the helm of an aero. Um, and they, you know, they the organisation itself really only just survived. You know, Matt's predecessor sort of got them out of the hole. Matt sort of has carried on growing and narrow, but it's not the organisation um, that it was when it bought Naked, and Naked certainly isn't the agency that was sold. Next, Chep gets deeper into media. Ben Shepherd has become the latest agency veteran to try consultancy life and then come back to Adland. We revealed this week that he's joining CHE Proximity, CHEP, as their chief media officer. It is a significant exit from PwC. Um, Abby, um, CHEP is a, an agency you, you, you've written about a lot over the years. Um, mm. They seem to have a lot of momentum at the moment. They absolutely do. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of looking back before in this before I came into this podcast about a couple of other people uh, moves that they've made and they appointed Matt, uh, Mark Gretton as chief, chief technology officer in April as well, which I think is also really interesting. But I think the thing that's giving Chep a lot of momentum at the moment is this whole consultancy approach that they're taking. I mean, you know, there's was and has been a lot of talk about consultancies and agencies and, and how that's playing a role. But I think CHE Proximity are the only agency that's kind of Done a done a reverse and actually absorbed absorbed consultancy into the agency rather than absorbing an agency into a consultancy. And I think that's really clever because I don't think you can teach creativity to, you know, if, if you're a consultancy buying an agency or or making an agency. But I definitely think that the consulting element comes a lot more naturally to an agency. And I think the thing that is making them quite dif- quite different at the moment is that their consultancy approach allows them to solve genuine business problems beyond simply selling a product and i think that's something that's quite new in the in the agency market 
And of course, Ben's quite a good fit because prior to PwC, he was OMD, so he's done the media, OMD strategy, so he's done the media thing. So to actually have somebody who does know media quite well as it works in agencies and is one of the few who's also done it at a consultancy as well it's an interesting mix isn't it and i think you know talking about naked like we were just talking about and that that media neutral approach i sort of look back and think about a lot of the work that has won awards for CHE proximity and it's not big TV ads. It's not big production TV ads. They've, they've done a lot of, of work for Velocity that's kind of been on Velocity's owned channels and, and that's actually been their media. And I think that they have a really different approach to media buying and that they're doing a lot. Um, I think it was at the start of this year, they made nearly uh, 50 million in, in, in media billings, which is pretty good for, for a full service or kind of traditional creative agency and now of course we see them trying to replicate it across the whole Cleminger group as well yeah which is something that's you know again quite interesting I think Cleminger Sydney is is a is an agency that's stuck in the middle it's kind of the way that I would describe them at the moment and and giving them a bit of a consulting approach and and giving them the challenge of solving genuine business problems by not just saying here's another stool you should buy it let's do that in a creative way is really interesting so, Viv, consultancies, this is slightly unfair because I don't expect you to have an insider's point of view. <laughs> um, PwC, so obviously they've had a big push into consulting to the media and marketing world and actually separately with the CMO consultancy and, and media advisories. They have sort of two arms to it. But obviously Ben's going from PwC. Megan Brownlow, who used to do the Media and Entertainment Outlook report, you know, was really built a, a, a a thought leading position around that annual report um, has, has, has stepped away. Uh, Sunita Gloucester kind of came and went and she's at, she's at WPP now. What does that say about PwC that I think with, I mean, I can think of the high profile example of Russell Howcroft of, of, of still being there, but other than that, there, there are a few people who've churned through. Yeah, look, it's notable because Ben was a founding member of PwC's CMO advisory that you mentioned, which was such a big push for them into that space. And it's interesting whenever we write about Ben or PwC, people come into the comment thread and just call them accountants and they just love to lump everybody in. Well, what would they know? They're just accountants. But when you're talking about people like Ben, like Russell, like Sunita, like Megan, they're not accountants uh, and it's very dismissive to to frame them that way, I think they are really high profile departures and it is being noted in the industry that a lot of them have gone back to more traditional roles. You've got Ben going back agency side. You've got Sunita taking a chief customer role at the biggest holding group, WPP. And you've got Megan focusing on, you know, a, a tree change and, and board roles. By the way, um, Sunita, I guess it's a client facing role. I think she might be quite good at it. I was in the Qantas lounge at six o'clock in the morning the other morning and I saw her working the room. Wow. Yes, she she doesn't stop, that's for sure. But I think we should also be careful in, in writing off PwC too soon. That's four very key people who've left. It is a big loss, but that's an organisation of thousands and thousands of people. I think we should talk about it again if Sir Howcroft leaves. But for now, I think, you know, every organisation goes through change. I don't think we can say that this spells the end for them just yet. Well, next, a big week in telly. Who 
a couple of big television moments this week with the finale of Nine's Lego Masters and the debut of Ten's Celebrity Name Game, the uh, that popular six o'clock short telepresenter slot. Uh, Hannah, who were the winners? Um, well, the overall winner was definitely Lego Masters. It went out on 1.493 million, that's which is total people. To, uh, yeah, that's total metro, metro people. Metro total, yeah, which is even more than it premiered to. It premiered to 1.377, so it only had a three-week run, and it was on three times a week. So it was a fairly short run. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, explain the format. Yes, yeah, so and like, we will talk about the demographics as well. Yes. Yeah, so Lego Masters was hosted by Hamish Blake, which I suspect was a lot of its appeal. Um, but basically, it was an hour-long show which saw teams of two build from Lego. That's kind of the whole thing. They were given about 15 hours to complete challenges in Lego. Um, and I understand that the way I'm describing it maybe doesn't sell it that well, but I did switch it on in a kind of like, maybe I'll you know give this a go. What is everyone kind of leaping at? And it was really good. I can see Abby shaking her head next to me with a little bit of disdain. So I will throw to her in a minute because I suspect that maybe she's not a Lego Masters fan. But I think Hannah's right that Hamish Blake 100% made that show. I too dabbled in it wanting to hate watch it, you know, wanting to not be on board. But Hamish was so funny. He His whole shtick was sort of the – reality TV programming and, and, and the countdowns and the dramatic MasterChef style, you know, Gary Megan saying, you've got two hours to go, but he'd do something really silly, like say you've got three hours, 14 minutes and 57 seconds to go. He he was a great host for that show and he made it quite tongue-in-cheek, quite funny and, you know, made fun of, of the whole prospect of what is quite a ridiculous show. But, Abby, I'm not sure that you agree. I just don't get it. I really don't. And it kind of makes me think about the programming that's on at the moment as a whole. Like if if that's, you know, pulling those kind of numbers, is it because that it doesn't have much competition at the moment? Like uh, is the is the TV industry ripe for disruption? <laughs> no, I have, a th- I have a theory, which is, uh, and it's almost the opposite of maths, you know, I, I have a house up with our kids. In. We, we mm. couldn't have the telly on when maths was on, really, not mm. when the kids were around. Whereas they were asking us to watch Lego mm. Masters. You know, we, we, we watched as a family and enjoyed watching the finale. So um, it's kind of nice to be able to switch the television on again. I think it had. The best comparison I saw was it being compared to Great British Bake Off, which has that kind of quirky host. It's got two comedians or they've just switched over, but it had two comedians in the hosting role and it was very nice. It was aggressively nice. Nobody was ever laughing at somebody else dropping their cake or whatever. Lego Masters to me gave me that vibe and it gave me very family friendly. You were rooting for everybody involved. You're not sitting there laughing at them. And I think they just hit it at the right moment. I think after the nastiness of maths, Nine just kind of came in with that. And as you say, it was such family friendly viewing. It just hit such a sweet spot. No one ever talks about the Great Australian Bake Off, do they? <laughs> there may be a reason for that. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Poor thing. Trapped in subscription television without any viewers. Um, and we should just cover it off because it's one thing to win in all people, but uh, the advertiser favourite demographics are also important. How did, uh, how did it do in that? 
Um, it did really well. Every night it was this is Lego Masters. Every night it was on, it took the top spot in all three, which is the 16 to 39s, 18 to 49s, and 25 to 54s. It was fairly untouchable every single night it was on. It's worth noting as well that Nine was forecasting for the premiere 450,000 in the key 25 to 54 demographic, which is where Nine really likes to play. They really like to play in 25 to 54 and grocery buyer plus child, whereas 10 positions itself as the under 50s network once again. So it's more focused on the, the younger, you know, 16 to 39, 18 to 49. So nine forecast four hundred and fifty thousand in the twenty five to fifty four demo. They got six hundred and seventy six thousand in that demographic on the premiere. And for the winner's announcement, where overall there were one point four nine three million Metro viewers, it got seven hundred and fifty nine thousand in twenty five to fifty four. So that's a huge, huge number of people who we often say are no longer watching TV who are watching TV to watch people build Lego. Well, speaking of people watching new shows, Celebrity Name Game with We Grant Denya. Uh, that was Ten's latest uh, attempt to fix the awkward 6pm slot. How did it go, Hannah? This is probably, it was fairly predictable, but unfortunately it did not do very well. It premiered to 314,000 Metro viewers. I thought you were going to say th- that number in 2554. <laughs> no, no, sadly not. <laughs> it then significantly dropped the next night to 248,000 viewers. Um, it's worth noting here that when Pointless disappeared off the air, it was down to 200,000, but it did premiere at 493. So it premiered higher. However, it did premiere across 10, 10, Bold and 10 Peach, whereas Celebrity Name Game only premiered on 10. Um, Family Feud went out at 213,000, 100,000. So unfortunately, Celebrity Name Game not sitting much higher above that. Um, however, it's not all bad news for 10. Have You Been Paying Attention came back this week as well. And both it and MasterChef are always really high in those key demographics. So while 10 obviously haven't found a secret to the 6pm slot, they aren't doing terribly overall. So still with TV, 9 finally killed off the AFL footy show. A long time coming? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I think it was a – they. so the NRL footy show went last year. Um, this is the AFL footy show that went. Um, Nine doesn't have the AFL. So it's kind of the concept of them having a talk show about a sport they don't have is an interesting one. Um, but it went down to just before it got cancelled, it slumped to 53,000 viewers in Melbourne, which is the lowest in its history. Um, it is worth noting, though, it was it first aired in 1994 and it was Australia's longest running sports entertainment program. So it had been giving a, given a really good shot. It's a different era, though, 2019 to, you know, when it started, I think. Shows like that, and I know they tried to evolve and I know they had new hosts and they've given a different approach to go, but that sort of buff head sports style program just doesn't really resonate as well anymore. And, you know, if it can't work in Melbourne, which is such an AFL town, then honestly, like it just can't last. So what's interesting as well is, uh, yeah, as you said, it got a complete remake at the beginning of 2019, new hosts. Also in 2019, Seven has come through with the Front Bar, which is kind of their version of the AFL footy show. And that's been pulling, last week it pulled 278,000 viewers in Melbourne alone, um, 427 hundred thousand in metro so it's performing quite well and there is kind of whispers around that maybe that was the final nail in the coffin for the afl footy show next sexual harassment at industry awards nights (laughs) 
This week we carried a guest post from Susie Riddell about an incident that happened to her at an industry awards night. Now, Viv, you edited this piece. Susie had a pretty unsatisfactory time when she sought support from her employer afterwards. What actually happened? So I do want to tread carefully here because it is somebody else's story, but she did share it with us, which Susie would know and I would know is always a risk to put your name to something like this because for whatever reason it means that people think they're entitled to comment on what you did right and what you did wrong in these situations. So I want to be really careful not to do that. But based on the piece that she submitted, uh, Susie was sexually assaulted at an industry awards night. She didn't say which one of the many uh, industry awards nights it was and that she went to her employer about it and she says that they were entirely unhelpful and she ended up leaving because she she just felt like a pest and she felt unsupported and she felt like a nuisance. She also phoned up the employer of the alleged attacker and she said she was really dismissed by that industry leader who said well it couldn't possibly have been anyone here at X company. We love women here at X company, which is frustratingly, every woman in this room is shaking their head with that knowing look because we've all heard that and we all know that that can happen. And Susie says she was never contacted by that uh, person's company again. And she just felt like she was left very high and dry. So she's urging the industry as we catapult towards conference season and awards season to do more, uh, to be better and, and to take these allegations far more seriously when they come your way. And I suppose it's a it's a two-part thing really, isn't it? It's what one's own employer does and what the employer of uh, the perpetrator does. You know, I think it's interesting and, you know, this isn't something that is always related and, I, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but I also think Josie Tuddy, the former deputy editor here at Umbrella, wrote, wrote an opinion piece about, about drinking at, at this time of year and, you know, unfortunately sometimes that, that does lead to things like this happening and, and, and lines being blurred and as an employer it's, it's quite hard to find that line of what's appropriate in terms of alcohol and alcohol-related events and, and what's not. So Susie does ask this question, and, and I do want to make it clear that alcohol isn't, I get what you're saying, yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. alcohol totally isn't an excuse like, oh, we were drinking, so I assaulted you. But I, I get what you're saying, and Susie touches on it too, where she said, you know, who is accountable when something like this happens when it's technically after hours, but you're on the job? And I think that that's a discussion that Adland really needs to have when we're out and about and drinking so much and we become friends with people in the industry we go drinking with them and it's kind of a work catch-up and it's kind of mm. not and then it's kind of a date and it's it's kind of not you're kind of friends but you, you've still got to deal with each other in a work sense so it's about talking about where those lines are where the legal responsibility is and just where the ethical responsibility is as well because you're sort of on the clock, you're sort of having a good time and then something awful happens. So who's actually going to step up and, and support people when they're in these situations? And as Susie says, you know, take reasonable steps to protect employees. Hannah. Yeah, I definitely think it needs to be a part of a wider conversation because as you said, um, especially in an industry as small as this one and in Australia where everybody knows everybody, especially in certain capital cities, I think um, – the problem is you very easily slip from work time to personal time. And I think people are 
the lines get blurrier the more you slip into personal time. So I do think it definitely needs to be an industry-wide conversation. It also needs to be an industry-wide conversation about um, whether we are pushing the line of having too much fun in these situations. Not that, of course, that is an excuse, but it does just help those lines get blurrier. And I think having these conversations is really imperative to that, you know, it's amazing that that Susie was, you know, wanted to actually tell her story. And I think we need people to stand up and say, hey, this happened and it's really not okay because the more you call it out, the more people are going to become aware of it and the more that in the industry and, and companies can do about it. I wonder how long it will be until there's an incident like this that actually ends with somebody right there on the spot calling the police. Well, unfortunately, you know, some people did sort of come at Susie in the comment thread being like, this isn't your employer's problem, it's the police's problem. And as Susie says, when you're in that situation, you're not always thinking clearly and you're not always sure what to do and and you start questioning yourself and your role Mm. in it and, and what you did to contribute and you know that you're going to be seen as a nuisance and a pest and so she went to her employer and, and I guess what she's saying is they needed to step up and because they would have had a more clear head because they hadn't been assaulted. They could be more objective. And her argument is I went to them for support. Their show of support should have been, right, let's go to the police, let's do this and sort of help her force that decision to, to do something because she's, you know, she's too in it to see what she should do. But it will be interesting because it's a problem that's not going to go away, but people are becoming more and more aware of it. So, look, it wouldn't surprise me if we're at something in the coming years and someone calls the police or something bigger happens because people are getting better at calling it out. I mean, this is a tough, really tough hypothetical. If you saw something happen at an industry event now that didn't happen to you but you saw happen, do you think you could see yourself calling the authorities at that point? That is a tough hypothetical. Uh, and I don't know what I would do, to be quite I honest. have been in a situation before where, and this is before my time at Mumbrella, and it, it wasn't any of my former employers either, just, just to be clear, but I was at a work-related event when something happened to me. I didn't do a lot about it because I felt like I could deal with it and I would you know, I sort of felt like, oh, I, I can deal with this, I'll let it go. I then found out that it happened again to somebody else that I know who was significantly younger than me. And it's weird. I was more passionate about the fact that it happened to somebody else than when it happened to me. When it happened to me, I was like, oh, this is gross. It's disgusting. Men are trash, but I can deal with it. But when it happened to somebody else who I felt like should have been under my care because they were younger and they were, you know, I was friendly with them, suddenly I was like, oh, hell no, that's that's not going to stand. And that's when I took action and that's when the ball got rolling. And, and in this instance, the person who had assaulted me and assaulted this other younger girl didn't, did end up getting fired by his employer. So based on my past experience, if it happened to somebody else, I'm fairly confident I'd step in, but I'm not as good when it comes to when things happen to me. Abby. And I think, you know, Viv, Viv on that, you know, if, if you are at an event with with other work employees as well, it's also having the ability to confide in them and go up to them and say, hey, I'm feeling really awkward in this situation. Can you please help me remove myself from this situation as well? So it's it's also knowing in that moment that it's okay to actually bring someone else in, not not necessarily into it, but but consult someone else when you're in that position as well. 
Actually, and even further to Viv's point of um, whether, well, it may not be your business's dis, uh, their role to persecute the person, you need their support. I think mm. that needs to be there if you're going to start calling people out as well. Because if I call someone out at an event, I would like to know that my business would be behind me in that and anything that fell out from that. So it definitely needs to be a case for businesses to step up. Next, Hannah talks about Seven's digital strategy. I'm Hannah Blackiston with Mumbrella, and I'm here with James Bays, who's the head of digital sales for Seven. Welcome to the Mumbrella cast. Thank you for having me. How are you doing this morning? Amazing. Yeah. Okay, great. So you joined the business in 2017, um, and since then, there's been a lot of changes that have happened. Um, The first one we're going to start with is the Seven News and Yahoo 7 split. Um, So April this year, the sale of Yahoo 7 to Verizon was completed and 7news.com.au launched. Can you talk me a little bit through that split and where you guys kind of um, started from after that? Um, Yeah, so I I joined in uh, November 2017 to help establish the commercial side of Seven's digital business. We've gone through a number of different phases um, in... uh, uh, in closing out that relationship with Yahoo 7. So, uh, prior to my joining the business, the Pacific Magazine's digital business was uh, was taken out, the West Australian was taken out, uh, and then over the last 18 months, the final piece of that joint venture were, were taken out. So, the largest piece of that was our uh, OTT or BVOD product, um, which was then plus seven, is now seven plus. Uh, and that's really been a phenomenal ride for the business, been incredibly successful. The strategy's been executed really well. And then most recently, in the last month, we've taken out uh, Seven News and Seven Sport, which has really signaled a significant push for us into digital publishing uh, to complement our strength in long-form video and, and to complement what the guys at, uh, at Pacific and the West are doing. And at the time, um, Tim Warner said uh, that you had rad- that Seven had radically revitalized its digital strategy. Um, there was a little bit of backlash kind of leading up to that and at the time that maybe it was a little bit too late to do that. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, you know, look, I think um, to a certain extent, um, we've almost got last mover advantage on certain uh, components, components of this as well. I mean, the opportunity to be able to go back and scrap the code base on the old product and rebuild uh, those businesses, both from a, a product perspective and a consumer perspective, to really rebuild them from the ground up has allowed us, allowed us to architect uh, a product and a business strategy that's really geared for the now and not be tied to sort of legacy technology that um, uh, was great product when it was built five or six years ago. But, um, you know, tech in this space moves phenomenally quickly and the, the, it's a really liberating experience, to be honest with you, given the opportunity to be able to to go back and build this stuff from the ground up. So, uh, so we've had the opportunity to sit back and look at uh, what's happening in um, the market, both commercially and from a product perspective, and to be able to, to build what... Uh, are now market-leading consumer products, and we're really confident in the strategy that we've got and the teams to be able to execute on it. So let's talk a little bit more about um, 7news.com.au. Um, so the digital news space has kind of been dominated for a while by news.com.au. Um, Nine, obviously, when they split from MSN, they kind of launched and they've been quite successful in that space. What is the plan with 7news.com.au? Well, firstly, I'd say we're not short on aspiration in any way, shape or form with any of our digital businesses, but also uh, in particular in relation to 7news.com.au. So, what you've got to remember is that news is a 
powerhouse within uh, Seven West Media and the and Seven Network in general. Um, from a broadcast perspective, we have a market leading news product that wins night after night after night. Uh, but until we launched sevennews.com.au on its new stack five or six weeks ago, it was really quite a disconnected ecosystem. So you had the Yahoo 7 News product, which was really a standalone news product, owned, uh, which was controlled by the JV. You had the broadcast uh, news product. And then you had these phenomenally engaged social communities, which we'd had the opportunity to build throughout uh, the, the joint venture, but that were owned and operated by uh, the 7 Network. For the first time five weeks ago, we now have the opportunity to be able to connect up all of those parts together, have this phenomenal engine room with broadcast pushing towards our digital news assets, as well as over 10 million people uh, within these social communities pushing through to those digital assets as well. And uh, the impact of that and the ability to be able to scale audiences really quickly, uh, we've been over the moon with Um uh, and it really, it's really a great case study for the ability for television to be able to build brands and build audiences quickly. Um, but yeah, we're, we're thrilled with the way that that product's progressing. So I am going to ask you, uh, Clive Dickens, just before, so he obviously left earlier this year to go to Optus. Um, before he left, he did say that 7news.com.au would be number one within six months. Is that something that you also believe? Uh, absolutely. Look, absolutely. We really believe in the strategy that we have um, uh Clive's amazingly passionate, as we all are, um, about the opportunity that we have with 7news.com.au. Uh, what I can say is from an audience perspective, we are head and shoulders ahead of where we thought we would be five months, uh, five weeks post-launch. Uh, and we're really confident in the strategy and plan that we have in place. As I said before, for the first time, having that ecosystem tied together, um, we, uh, we're really confident in what that can, uh, what that can deliver for us. So um, let's pivot now to talk about um, BVOD. So at this, so 7 Plus launched in 2017 after you mentioned Plus 7. Um, how has 7 Plus kind of been tracking for the business? Look, it's really gone from strength to strength. Uh, BVOD is head and shoulders the fastest growing um, advertising medium in this country. Uh, if you look at any of the ad spend reports that um, that the IAB do a great job in pulling together, video is underpinning the digital ad e- ecosystem and BVOD is really what's underpinning video. So um, it's now a scaled, mature market, both from a, an advertiser perspective as well as from, a, um, as from an audience perspective. You know, you're talking about there's no other market that I know of um, that's growing from an audience perspective at 50, 60, 70% year on year and doing it consistently. And there's no signs of that slowing down at all. So the market itself is growing um, very rapidly. The products that we're creating as networks to be able to connect those audiences to advertisers are evolving rapidly as well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last 18 months around addressable TV and what that means in this market and the different solutions that um, that uh, the different networks would bring to market we've we launched that 18 months ago in the rugby league world cup and we've done it in every major sporting event since then from um winter olympics commonwealth games melbourne cup super bowl and all of our general entertainment programming every day since and you know it's really just a bau product for us now but um but it's a really exciting market i mean it's growing so quickly um connected tv is fueling all of that growth and it just brings together the best of broadcast in terms of scale brand safety um uh studio produced quality environments as well as the targetability of digital so we're really excited by it um we're doubling down our investment to grow that market um and you know fundamentally we think it's what the future of tv looks like 
So there are a couple of things inside that that I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, firstly, there's a couple of different schools of thought on BVOD platforms, whether users should be logging in, whether you should be collecting that data from them logging in. Where does um, 7 Plus sit on that? Uh, look, I'll start by saying that we, like all networks, believe in addressability. We believe in one-to-one targeting. We just have slightly different approaches to the way that we uh, acquire that user information. So we fundamentally believe that user registration should be optional, that you shouldn't be forcing people to log in. And the reason for that is we just think that the quality of data that you get from a user when you give them a tangible reason for logging in, um, uh, we think you're going to get better information about that user. So, um, for us, it's, a, it's about being open, transparent. It's about saying to a user, if you give us this information, uh, we will improve the service that you get, whether that's uh, personalized recommendations or, um, uh, or HD streaming or, um, or device pass off or any of those kinds of things. So, we just believe in being open, transparent. And I think in this day and age where there's more attention than ever that's going into consumer privacy and customers understand the value of their information more than they ever have before, we think that that's a far more sustainable long-term strategy. Um, but make no mistake, like we are um, acquiring audiences at scale. Um, w- consumers are choosing to share their information with us um, uh, at scale and that insight in relation to audiences is underpinning our audience targeting capability to drive results for clients. So we don't see it as slowing down our strategy in any way, shape or form. We just think it's a better path towards uh, getting a better quality data set from audiences. And um, in that targeted advertising space, there's a couple of developments um, already here and coming. So, Oztam Voz, which is Oztam Virtual Australia, and Oztam VPN, their video player measurement. What does targeted advertising look like commercially for the BVOD area going forward? Uh, look, I think the promise of Voz is uh, unified cross-screen trading with a common reach and frequency across screens. And I think it's it's so hard now to determine what's broadcast and what's BVOD, particularly in a, on a connected TV. Uh, you know, really the only thing that separates the two experiences is one, you've got an antenna on your roof and the other one is it's connected through your Wi-Fi. Uh, so, I, I think um, from an advertiser's perspective, what we need to do is to help them to understand that, that audience behavior across screens uh, to unify um, that view of audiences across screens so that we can help them to better plan reach and frequency because understanding reach and frequency is at the core of delivering advertiser outcomes. And the guys at OzTam deserve a huge amount of credit for the work that they've done on Voz. Uh, you know, this is a global, uh, glo- will be a globally leading product. Um, there's nowhere in the world that is that has a solution like Voz does. Um, it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there, but I think the promise of what it's going to deliver is, is amazing. Um, the other great thing about what Voz will do is will help us to connect up the ecosystem, not just between screens, but also between uh, publishers or broadcasters as well. So having the ability to be able to manage reach and frequency across competitive BVOD products as well as across screens, I think gives us a better scaled view of audiences across the market, um, which, uh, you know, all advertisers want to reach um, reach audiences at scale with uh Um, So, I think there's a number of fronts to get really excited about what Voz is going to deliver. 
do you think there's more education there to be done for agencies and advertisers on what can be delivered with these new products and what can be delivered across BVOD and connecting all the ecosystems up? Or do you think they're ready there and, you know, the money's just there waiting to be spent? Uh, no, look, I think education is an ongoing thing. Um, uh, and it's one of the challenges, right? Um, BVOD has uh, has sat in multiple buckets within an agency. It's sat both within the digital video bucket, which um, is largely controlled by or increasingly controlled by agency trading desks. And then you've got the broadcast piece that's sitting with broadcast teams and um, linear trading teams. So helping to resolve where cross-screen trading sits within an agency, I think is still being worked out and different agency groups will tackle that in a different way. But it's up to us as broadcasters to try to make that a more coherent thing um, uh, and to to not just provide the currency, but to also try to bring together the technology to allow agencies to trade that um, within their businesses. So, um, ThinkTV is doing a lot of great work uh, in that space. Oztam is, is as well. There's some engagement that's going on with the MFA to try and work through some of those challenges. I don't think we have all of the answers yet, but we're certainly working really hard to try and resolve that. So we had an opinion piece written for our website um, by Ben Shepard on uh, basically his opinion that um, Australia's TV network should get together and create a unified BVOD service. Um, I think his kind of the crux of the piece was that to tackle the big giants like Netflix, you need to have one centralized platform. Firstly, do you agree with that? Uh, I agree with parts of it, yeah. Um, But you've got to remember, like, the industry already collaborates in a range of different ways already. Uh, so, Oztam is a great example of the way that the industry collaborates to bring a common currency and a common measurement uh, across all of us. You know, we don't all have our own um, measurement uh, methodologies. We have one. Um, Freeview is another great example. I mean, um, Freeview is a scaled, aggregated BVOD service. Now, there's some work that needs to go into that as a product to really realize the potential of a unified BVOD service, but there, there is that, that already exists and is already in market. Um, so, yeah, I think there are areas that we need to um, better collaborate and work more closely together um, to, tra- to create a more unified approach to um, total video across broadcast and BVOD. Um, do I think that a single BVOD service is the only answer? Uh, no. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are parts that I like of, of, the, of the idea, but I don't think it's the only way that we can do it. Do you think um, taking on Netflix should even be a consideration for commercial networks? Do you think – I think um, my kind of takeaway from the piece was that Ben seems to be suggesting that um, consumers are only going to use one platform, which I kind of disagree with. I know I personally use about five of them. Um, Is Netflix even kind of in your sights or are you more concerned about what you're doing um, in the BVOD space? Uh, Well, of course we, um, you know, we, we think about them Um, and they're also a significant uh, uh, client of ours as well, Um, both as an advertiser, but we, uh, through seven studios, we, uh, we make, create and sell content to, um, uh, Amazon, Netflix, um, a range of different SVOD platforms around the world. And I think uh, as a content creator, having more avenues to be able to deliver that content to audiences, like that's a really exciting thing. Now, if all we were was a dumb pipe that was just buying content from somebody or licensing formats or those sorts of things, that's a really different conversation, but that's not our business. We create more premium, long-form, studio-produced content in this country than anybody else does. So, of course, we think about them. Um, I think, uh, 
you know, we talk holistically about our strategy as total video. Um, and I just look at my own content consumption. Um, sometimes I watch live, sometimes I watch on demand, sometimes I watch free ad, uh, free, sometimes I watch ad funded, sometimes I watch, uh, subscription content. Um, I think, I often get asked what's the right video strategy and I think the only answer to that is every video strategy because as a consumer, you consume in multiple ways and I pay want to pay for that content in multiple ways as well. So, um, I think, you know, we also learn things from platforms like Netflix. You know, we're really trying to kill off this notion of BVOD as just being a catch-up product because we just think it's a really limiting paradigm for what the potential of BVOD is. Um so, you know, some good examples of that in the last 12 months, we've had uh, some seven plus original commissions. So, um, Yummy Mummy season two was a good example of that last year. Um, first season of that was on broadcast, probably didn't um, deliver the broadcast ratings that we would have hoped for, but uh, performed really strongly on seven plus. And so, we commissioned it as a BVOD exclusive to, you know, work specifically on that platform. Um, we've done things like pre-windowing, so uh, shows where we've put up onto B, uh, up up onto Seven Plus before it goes onto broadcast, with a view to finding a small niche, passionate audience that might t- uh, talk about the show socially to try and drive interest in it before it actually goes onto broadcast. So we're almost using BVOD as a promotional tool for broadcast. And then there was a show last year, um, Hard Sun, which was a BBC Hulu co-production, where we ran. Um, uh, broadcast and BVOD, we released into those environments simultaneously, but then we stacked the whole season, uh, like immediately behind that first episode onto seven plus. So if you saw it on broadcast, you could binge watch it on seven plus afterwards. So, you know, we think there's a range of different models that we can make to work, uh, on, on BVOD and some of those we get from other services around the world. Um, but, what we're really trying to address is the changing nature of the way that audiences consume content. Um, so it's just about uh, creating great content, owning the stories, and then delivering that across a range of different platforms um, to meet those needs. Yeah. So let's talk about um, creating content. How important is it to have unique content, do you think? I think you kind of spoke in there about Seven Studios, and obviously you guys are very uh, big in that space. How important is that to the business strategy of Seven? It's critically important. Absolutely. You know, we own a range of the, um, you know, all of our tentpole formats. So, whether that's um, Sunrise in the Morning, Home and Away uh, in Early Evening, MKR, House Rules, we own all of those formats and we sell them around the world. So, owning those stories is really, really important. And I also think it's really important too, just in respect to um, uh, the global players that are looking at these markets. I mean, um, uh, things like news, sport, local production, telling Australian stories, they're the things that are going to keep our business and keep our industry healthy for the years to come. Um, t- yeah, telling telling great stories, that's, that's our business. So, just to wrap up, let's have a look at kind of, you know, look into the crystal ball. Um, what are you expecting from BVOD over the next five years? What would you like to see happen in the landscape and what do you think will happen? I think we'll continue to see phenomenal growth in audiences. Uh, we're not seeing that slowing down at all. I think the convergence of IP delivered video and broadcast video uh, will only continue. I think there'll be a, a an ongoing blurring of the lines between what is television and what is uh, digital video. And we need to, as an industry, come up with the tools to be able to help uh, 
our advertising partners to navigate that, to continue to extract the great results that they've had from television for the last 50 years, but to be able to do that across screens. So, um, so yeah, we, we, uh, we're, as I said before, you know, we fundamentally believe that BVOD is the future of what television looks like and we're going to continue to invest to make sure that we drive the greatest share of audiences and the greatest share of advertisers for that. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited by it. And what about in terms of Seven from a digital point of view um, in the kind of the wider view? Um, what are you expecting for sevennews.com.au and what's kind of the digital strategy for the next five years? So, underpinning all of it really is the strength of the network. So, you know, we have a powerhouse digital publishing business over in West Australia with uh, uh, with the West and Perth now. We've got a market-leading uh, lifestyle publishing business as well with Pacific, uh, which really leans on passion brands. So, you know, brands like Marie Claire, New Idea, um, Men's and Women's Health, Practical Parenting, like those, you know, those those passion brands that people really care about. Uh, um, so, you know, continuing to invest in in BVOD, continuing to invest in digital publishing and building out uh, commercially appealing um, uh, content verticals, I suppose, is one, one way to describe it. But then, you know, unifying that with our uh, audience and data strategy. So, we have a... a, a very unified approach to audience targeting right the way across the group. Um, every behavior that any user exhibits across the network all ties to a single profile um, so that we can target and retarget um, both within uh, the individual brands but also across the wider network as well. So, for instance, if you're running a campaign on women's health and you wanted to uh, amplify that and retarget through 7 Plus and use that data to inform your addressable TV strategy, that's what we're doing now. So, it's the unification of all of our assets together, uh, using that to build rich, deep audience profiles and then uh, leveraging those audience profiles to deliver outcomes for our clients. That's kind of the core of the strategy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, James. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. But before we go, don't forget the biggest Australian media and marketing conference of the year takes place June the 4th to 6th. That is less than three weeks away. There are over 80 sessions and 130 speakers this year at Mumbrella 360. That includes some unique sessions, uh, Microsoft's diversity champion, MJ De Palma. Initiative's global CEO, Matt Baxter. We were talking about Matt earlier. He was once, back in the day, one of the co-founders of Naked Australia, now in that big global role, coming home to speak at 360. And Qantas pilot, Richard DeCretney. Uh, also, uh, I'll be chatting to Hugh Marks at the event. We've got Kate Ritchie and James Magnuson, amongst the other big names. So please, please, please don't miss out. Tickets are still available at umbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella 360. That is it for the Mumbrella cast for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Tim.